Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Garth Mulkey and his wife Susan farm just under a thousand acres outside of Monmouth, Oregon, growing grasses, vegetables, and cover crops, mostly for the seed industry. For his seed business, GS3 Quality Seed, he sells several iconic cover crop seeds, including the tillage radish known as Nitro Radish, TNT Vetch, Super B Facilia, and more. Though not 100% no-till, Garth is a strong no-till advocate in his area and has recently begun no-till transplanting. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lesseter talks with Garth about his operation, which involves about 15 different crops, including hazelnuts. Garth talks about how no-till cut his planting window by about 70%, how he keeps slugs in check, and he also shares some of the business challenges he faced when commodity prices dropped in 2012. Here's Frank Lester with Garth Mulkey. So Garth, you've been involved with cover crops, you've been involved with no-till for a number of years. Tell us how you got started with no-till. Well, if you ask my dad, he'd say it's because I was lazy. I grew up on a farm and I left, I spent 10 years away from the farm from age 20 to age 30, basically. What'd you do? I was, of all things, a mechanic and a machinist for several national level racing teams, both motorcycles and automotive. And in 1994, I got married to a gal from my hometown in Monmouth, Oregon. And we lived in Indiana for a year, but the racing industry and the stresses and hours of that aren't conducive to raising a family. Right. My parents were getting to be of retirement age and my dad basically said, if you're not coming back to the farm, I'm gonna sell half of it. Well, I wanted the lifestyle. I knew I wanted the lifestyle for my family. So in December of 1994, we moved back to the farm. When I got back there, my dad, being that there was no plan for succession, sure. he had not been replacing equipment, which is very natural. So I got back and we started, well, if I'm gonna do this, we've gotta figure out a plan. At that time, there was a few people in the Willamette Valley no-tilling, but not a lot. And so I started networking with Dave Goracki of Saddle Butte, Brian Glasser, I'm sure you know Brian. And we've got a friend up in Amity, Bruce Rudenclaw, who's originally from New Zealand. And those three guys had been kind of playing with no-till. We formed a peer group. And we started sharing ideas and sharing experiences and we grew it from there. And my very first crop would have been 1996. We no-tilled meadow foam into ryegrass stubble. And that worked. Then it was a matter of figuring out what works and what doesn't. And we had some spectacular failures, but we learned enough on the way where we're, our farm is 80% no-till at this point. And I'd love to say it's 100, but we grow some specialty seed things that require tillage. Sure. I hate to admit that, but they're very high value. I mean, they're definitely worth sure. growing. So when you came back and your dad hadn't replaced equipment, maybe that was a plus for you because you needed to buy new equipment, but you needed to buy the right stuff. Yes and no. Yeah. My whole life I've been a contrarian. If I'd come back and the whole neighbor had been no-till, I probably would have bought a plow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm fortunate that they weren't. Yeah. Um, no-till's been a great time saver. It's been great for our soils. We've implemented cover crops in the last five to seven years on the ground where it fits. I'm very happy being a no-till farmer. And we've had some influence, my peer group and myself on our neighbors. There's not a big revolution into no-till in our area, 
but it's certainly a tool that people are open to using these days. So it's been fun. So how many acres do you farm? We farm just under a thousand. This year we grew 15 different crops. Tell us what some of them are. I've got a contract with a company that produces vegetable seeds. And this year we grew a hybrid spinach for seed. We grew chard for seed. We grew a hybrid oriental mustard for seed. We grew a hybrid pumpkin for seed, a hybrid cucumber for seed. And then through them, we do a ornamental sunflower that's a hybrid. And the progeny of that does not produce pollen. So it's a great cut flower that ladies can buy and take home because there's not pollen in their houses. So those are the six crops I grow for them. We grow our, the stuff we market in cover crops, the nitro radish, TNT vetch. We grow phacelia, annual ryegrass. And we've got a fair amount of acres committed to a turf type grasses. So lawns, golf courses, sports fields, that type of grass. We grow meadow foam, which is an oil seed crop used in hair and skin care products. We grow hazelnuts. We harvested our first hazelnuts this year. We planted our first orchard five years ago. So we're expanding into that as well. So the companies you sell seed to, they have any problems with your no-tilling? Not anymore. I mean, there was some nervousness yeah. to start. But one of the things that NOTU has led to, especially in the turf markets, is I'd much rather manage the weed bank in the top two inches of soil, where before when my father was plowing, we we're trying to manage a weed bank in 10 inches of soil. Right. So we've really cleaned up our seed tests and we've got some pretty nice products and companies are happy to have me grow for them. These high income, high value crops you're raising? The vegetable seeds, yes, very much so. They're high input and high management. Sure, right. But what I grow for the vegetable seed company, I almost am afraid to say it out loud, but I can profit $1,000 an acre. Wow. But they're limited acres. Right. A big year, I grow 160 acres for them out of our 1,000-acre farm. So don't do the math and think I'm making millions of dollars. <laughs> right, right. So what were some of the big mistakes you made? Having the wrong equipment to start. I mean, we were, because it was experimental, we were trying to do it on the cheap, and we saw the failures from that. Luckily, as a peer group, and we'd visit other farms as well, and we could see where spending money on this was going to show a return. One thing we really struggle with in the Willamette Valley is slugs. So we had to come up with a plan to address slugs every year on every acre. And getting the slug populations in control was huge. With no-till, we found that our pHs need to be higher. With tillage, there's something happening when you turn the soil that is stimulating some plant growth. But when we started no-tilling, if our pHs weren't built, we'd get very acidic in the top two inches and we'd struggle with seedling development. So we've done a lot of work building our pHs. Slugs and pHs are the two biggest things. I think the other thing we found, which I've read in your publications for years, is there's a transition period. And once we broke through that fourth or fifth year, things just became easier. And I don't know exactly what all to attribute to. A lot of it's just soil structure, being able to close that seed slot, getting good firming action in our equipment, getting that seed a nice place to start. And we couldn't actually do that when we were coming right out of tillage. But after four or five years, and then implementation of cover crops has sped that process up. In the 70s, people used to use this as an excuse not to no-till. They said, I'm going to have to plow in five years. There's going to be weeds. I'm going to have to plow. And my answer to them was, fine, no-till for two or three years and see how it goes. And I also know that they ended up not plowing because they right. didn't have to, but they thought they had to. And if you had to, go ahead and do it. I mean, it's not the perfect system. You're going to ruin what you have, but it right. got these guys started. I don't know of anybody that plowed after that. We currently have ground that has had been 18 years without tillage. 
And that's just unheard of in my neighborhood. My neighbors don't believe me, right. even though they drive by it. So do you seed vegetable crops with a regular planter or do you need a vegetable planter or what? Two different things. We use a regular planter on some of them. The chard and the mustard are transplants. Okay, that's what I was gonna ask yeah, you that. And two years ago, we built a no-till transplanter. So we're no-till transplanting our chard now, which has given us much better weed control than we were getting with the tillage. It allows us to get on the ground when it's wetter. We have very short windows in the spring to get things done. And there were times we'd have to do two days worth of tillage and then let it dry and then do another day of tillage. And then it's time to plant. Well, it takes us three days to transplant a 50 acre field. So we needed a seven day window before we could plant. Now with a no-till, we need a two day window and we can plant in the rain after we've had two days of drawings. Yeah. It's been very beneficial for weed control and just the ability to get it done in a timely fashion. So what's the growing season for vegetable crops? Long, three months, four months, what? Yeah, typically we're planting the end of March through April and harvesting August and September. Just harvest with a regular combine? Yeah, we swath it like we do grass seed and then harvest with a regular combine. So has burning been part of your situation on some of these grasses or not? It was when I was a kid. Burning was pretty much banned in 1989, I believe. Right. There's some areas of the valley that can still burn, but they're up against the foothills on the east side of the valley. We haven't burned since the early 90s. So the crops that you raise that are not for seed, how do you market them? Basically everything I grow for seed is for seed except for the hazelnuts. Okay. Yeah. The meadow foam is an oil seed. So that goes to a co-op that my dad was a founder of. I believe Brian Glasser's dad was a founder. Nick Bauer's dad was a founder. Okay. Wayne Kaiser's dad might have been a founder of this co-op. Right. So there's a pretty tight knit group of us that are still working together because our fathers work together. Is most of the valley seed or not? I would say the majority is a seed crop of one or another. There is some soft white wheat production. There are some canneries, there's blueberries, there's other different types of berries, there's 70,000 acres of hazelnuts. So it's not exclusively seed, but the majority of the acres are. How do you market your hazelnuts? They go to a processor. There is a hazelnut bargaining association set up in Oregon, which sets the price for all the processors. Why was having the right pH so important to you? Just for seedling development. I mean, this okay. is, we get very acidic. When I came back to the farm, the rented ground, my dad was always afraid to lime rented ground because he might lose it. Some of those pHs were in the fours. So we're very acidic. We get a lot of rain. We use a fairly high rates of fertilizer for the crops we're growing. So I like to see the pHs in the sixes. Now I know people that are here at this conference tell me they think six is low for where they're at. Right, right. Yeah. Organic matter been increasing? Yes, and I haven't tracked it. I haven't really tracked it. I just know what we're doing is working. We'll rejoin Frank and Garth in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. There's been a lot of talk lately about growing corn in 60-inch rows, and it's being tried on a number of farms in the Midwest. And it reminds me of something we did a no-till farmer back around 15 years ago in 2005. 
and it was the fact that skip roll farming in the Great Plains could provide higher yields in dry years based on studies done in the wheat, corn, and fallow rotation. At Kansas State University, Dave Fell says this idea works particularly well with Roundup Ready corn. His early studies indicate that skip roll corn won't harm yields in a good year, but that it could help very much in a drought year. The idea is to plant the same number of plants per acre, just in one-third fewer rows. And Kansas researchers are also looking at that time at no-tilling skip roll soybeans. However, don't confuse that with the fact that some Midwestern soybean growers are using skip rows to save on seed costs and to leave unplanted rows for tractor and sprayer wheels to follow. In other words, a controlled traffic pattern. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lasseter and Garth Malky. So you mentioned slugs, and slugs back here in the Corn Belt can be a bad problem some years, not every year. So what did you come up with for taking care of slugs? Well, unfortunately, I traded the diesel I saved with no-till for buying slug bait. That's been a lot of it. And it's just a matter of getting the populations in check. We don't have the freezing weather that they have in the Corn Belt, which can be a deterrent to slugs. So it's a lot of it's just looking out for them. Some of it is crop rotation. We've got some crops they don't like. So if we can run them through a rotation, that seems to thin the populations. So slug baits, there's been some on the market, some got banned or whatever. Isn't that about right or do I have it wrong? Yeah, yeah. we use either a iron phosphide bait or a metaldehyde bait. Those are the two primary ones that are available to us. There's a new one that's a sulfur bait, but I don't have much experience with it. And we rotate baits, we don't throw the same product twice. We usually start with a metaldehyde and then go to an iron bait. So raising seed crops gonna take more labor? Certainly, I mean, we'll have, for a thousand acres, it's me and two full-time guys normally, and then we have summer help. Some of that's the irrigation for the vegetable seeds. We use a lot of contract labor. All of our turf type grasses get spot sprayed, which is a crew walking the fields with backpack sprayers and spraying weeds typically twice a year. So there's a fair amount of labor in keeping those fields clean and the purities high in our seed tests. So educate me on turf grasses. Is it gonna be actual turf that you grow enough to get seed or? Well, it's the same seed that you'd grow turf with, but we've planted at a very light rate so we don't overpopulate the field. Okay. And then we'll harvest the grass like we would the annual for the cover crop market. It gets processed a little more stringently because the tolerance for weeds is very, very tight on the turfs. How'd you get into cover crops? I used to spend a lot of time on the internet on a site called New Ag Talk, and I was growing radish seed for the sprouting market. We've got companies that contract acres and it goes to Japan or Korea for sprouting. And I had posted some pictures of my farm planting radish seed. Well, a guy from Pennsylvania by the name of Steve Groff, sure. you may have heard of him. Yeah, we know him, we know him. <laughs> he called me up and asked if I could grow radish seed for him. So I worked with Steve for several years, and, and then I got the opportunity, and the market was expanding, that I started my own seed company. How did you come up with the particular type of radish that we seem to have today? What was it called, a Danish radish or a not? Daikon. A daikon. Daikon, I'm sorry. I found some Vienna seed from two different sources and we crossed that, and then we started planting it on our wetter soils. We'd get some drowned out, but not 100%, and we kept saving the seed from the wetter areas, and eventually we had enough for a block, 
And at that point, we employed a seed breeder to go through us and finalize that cross in that breeding program. That's how we generated nitro radish. Now it's a certified variety through Oregon State University. It's been a very good product. Our customers have always been real happy with it. Do the seed processors provide the seed to you for your vegetable crops or not? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Often I don't know the details on the variety. It's just a number. I don't know who the customers are. Right. I don't even know where the customers are often. It's very right, tightly right. controlled. Right. So when you plant, what's a typical vegetable you plant? Chard is very okay. common. So will you plant one variety of chard or a whole number of? We plant one variety a year because okay. we need, if we have two varieties, they've got to be three miles apart. Gotcha. For That's isolation. where I was going. Yeah. yeah. Are they doing certification during the growing season or? There's no official certification through a university or a state level. The seed company just has a reputation of being very stringent production practices. Right. And they rely on me to uphold them. When I started growing vegetable seeds, they had an agronomist on my farm four days a week watching after that. Yeah. After 15 years, they've learned to trust me and it's not that stringent anymore, but, but we've proven to them we know what we're doing. Right. And they're happy to work with us and we're happy. We have a vegetable it. grower up in mid Wisconsin who went mainly green beans, peas, whatever. He no-tilled peas and the processor threw a fit. And right. he said, we're not renewing your contract. And the guy says, why don't you just wait to see what happened? No, what were your contract? Well, it was a wet year and they couldn't get their pea combines into the other fields because they were too wet. Yeah. And they put five pea combines in his field and they never had any more problems with selling notes. <laughs> and it was just because of the residue and you could work in the fields. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell me a little about the Cover Crop Company. We formed it in January of 2011. It was natural for us to partner with KB Seed for certain projects, one of them being the advertising program we run through Lesseter. And then I hit the road. I spent a lot of time in the Midwest developing relationships with customers. We've been very fortunate to have a relationship with Green Cover Seed. They're our largest customer and they've been great to work with. We've developed lots of other relationships over the years since then. And it's grown, it's, there's been struggles. When commodity prices dropped in 11, 12, there was some pain felt. Sure. Because we were producing it at X levels and all of a sudden the market dropped to two thirds of X. And we carried seed for a couple of years. We don't just grow seed on our farm, we have seven to 10 growers who grow for us. So all of a sudden I'm trying to borrow money to pay these growers off and keep everything afloat and things got tight, but you learn right. lessons and, and through it we come out ahead. It's enjoyable now. We've got a system, we've got a program, we've got good customers. Apparently we have good products because people keep buying them. I like the relationships we've built over the years. And I think we're at a much slower expansion rate than when we started, but we're still expanding. Hoping in the near future to bring my youngest daughter on to help run the seed company. She's currently a sophomore at Oregon State University studying business and she likes the seed business. She's been to no-till conference with me twice in the past. Good. Doesn't get to come anymore because of college, but right. in a couple of years that'll change. Let's say you're a farmer in the Illinois, Indiana, choosing your seed. What would you use? Annual ryegrass, radishes? Okay. Honestly, I have shied away from answering those questions because I want to push them to the local dealer. I mean, I want a guy that's within two hours of that to answer the questions. Because right. they're going to have a much better knowledge than some guy 2,200 miles west of them. I can answer those questions, sure. I understand it, but I really want to rely on the local knowledge. Do you think most of the seed you're going is going into multiple mixes? At this point, yes. Yeah, I mean, when we started, radish 
planted straight was pretty common. Now I bet less than 10% of my radish is planted straight. And the number of products in a mix just keeps expanding. It's quite interesting. I wouldn't have predicted it, but it seems to be, there's a lot of synergy in that and in those mixes and, and people are doing well with them. Yeah, we did a couple stories in which I pinned the guy down on 15 mix. Why are you using this? Why are you using that? I mean, and different roots go different ways yeah. and everything. Some are attracting insects and some aren't. Sunflowers the neighbors like to see. We plant mixes on field edges and stuff. It just keeps the neighbor ladies happy. Right. Brings attention to our farm. So times are kind of tough in agriculture right now. The commodities prices are down. Have you seen people move away from these multiple mixes? For instance, you could plant cereal rye or you could plant wheat and take it right out of your bin. You seen much of that or not? I think it kind of depends on what crops they're following in the rotation. I mean, if they've got a window in the rotation to get something planted in July and August, it's still a multi-species blend. We're getting pressure from cereal rye on the annual ryegrass sales because of cost, which is understandable. But we've got customers who have used annual ryegrass every year for 10 years, and they're going to use annual ryegrass next year. Right. I mean, it's a product that works. If you're a new guy starting out in cover crops in the last two or three years, you're probably going to go with what's most economical because you haven't realized those benefits in the past. Right. So At least you sell. got started with yeah. cover crops and then you can grow from yeah. there. So our no-tillers, probably 80% of our no-tillers are using cover crops. And I don't know offhand what the acreage is, but you look across the country and NRCS data shows we only got 4% of our row crop land being cover cropped. It's sad, isn't it? 4%. Yeah. So how do we get that built up? How do we sell these people? It doesn't matter what tillage system they're using, they should be using cover. I think it's gonna be a generational thing. I really do. It's gonna be slow. Flying out here on the airplane, we had a layover in Denver switch planes, half hour east of Denver, there was dirt blowing. I could see it from 35,000 feet. Yeah. It was quite sad. And I'm not a regulation guy, and I don't wanna see it regulated. Sure. But something needs to change. And I don't have the answer, Frank. I wish I did. I, hopefully it's generational. Hopefully the guys coming back to the farm in the next five to 10 years recognize things that their fathers didn't. But that's a lot of hope. I wish I had the answer. Well, when I was growing up on farm in the 40s and 50s, we were seeding cover crops. We were seeding the number of clovers. Right, legumes the, for nitrogen yeah, production. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Then the whole country seemed to get away from it. Right. Yeah, I probably didn't know what a cover crop was 20 years ago. It just was not a common practice. Sounds like you made a good move giving up the race cars and coming home. And... Yeah, I enjoy farming. I enjoy the business we're in. Yeah. Um, it's challenging. Right. Sometimes that's a good challenge. Sometimes it's not. Right. Okay. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, Frank. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the No-Till authorities featured in this series, you can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader wrote in recently and asked if there were any no-till practices that were used in the early days that were later abandoned and what kind of research led to that discovery. If you go back to when we started No-Till Farmer in 1972 and for the next few years, 
The majority of no-till at that time, if I remember right, was planted in the sod. Quite a few no-tillers would take off an early crop of hay in early May and then no-till corn directly into that sod. We still see a little bit of that, mainly today it's corn and soybeans, although some dairy farmers are probably still no-towing in the sod, and some people will tell you today that nothing beats no-towing in the sod for good weed control. Thanks to Frank Lasseter and Garth Mulkey of GS3 Quality Seed for today's conversation. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.